0: There's a land that is fairer than day And by faith we can see it afar For the Father waits over the way To prepare us a dwelling place there In the sweet by and by We shall meet on that beautiful shore In the sweet by and by We shall meet on that beautiful shore We shall sing on that beautiful shore The melodious songs of the blessed And our spirit shall sorrow no more Not a sigh for the blessing of rest In the sweet by and by We shall meet on that beautiful shore In the sweet by and by We shall meet on that beautiful shore Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. To our bountiful Father above We will offer our tribute of praise For the glorious gift of His love And the blessings that hallow our days In the sweet by and by We shall meet on that beautiful shore In the sweet by and by We shall meet on that beautiful show.
1: Alright, so we are just chugging along on the truth train. Didn't get my breakfast sandwich, so I am completely surviving on the, su- on the sustenance of truth alone. So let's get into some more of that meaty, meaty truth. So that way we can fill ourselves up and be nourished and edified by the truth so anyways we are on to another johannes johannes and this is johannes reuchlin and i will now call him reuchlin from here on out he was born in 1450 1455 excuse me in forzheim and he would study at the forzheim latin school and at the university of freiburg and at the university of paris So he is getting a lot of education. And one of his teachers there would be the one to translate the works of Pico into French. And he would appear before Pope Sixtus IV as an advisor of Count Eberhard of Württemberg as the Count's Latin interpreter. And then in 1485, after leaving his place of study at Basel University and returning to his country of birth, he would go on to work as a high-level judge and as an emissary to the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian. So, you know, he's appeared before the Pope. He knows the Roman Emperor Maximilian. He was a high-level judge. So he is a very influential guy, a, lot, a guy with a lot of power, and a guy with a lot of knowledge and an extensive education. And in 1482, he would begin to receive that oh-so-sweet Medici scrilla, They would be throwing the Medici stacks right at Roy Klin faster than he could dodge. So he just had to collect them and put them in his big old pockets and be weighed down by that Medici money. And he would further the tradition established by Pico and Ficino of looking for the Prisca Theologia, the Philosophical Concord, and just that is shared in common by all the various religious traditions, including paganism and Hermes Trismegistus. And he would, you know, get into Hermeticism, into Kabbalah, and into all these other things that Ficino and then... Pico would, you know, just further expand upon. So he's kind of expanding upon that tradition. And he would dedicate his book on Kabbalistic magic, on Kabbalistic esotericism, to none other than Leo V, who was the second son of Lorenzo de' Medici. And his father would arrange for him to be the cardinal at age 13, as we, you know, discussed earlier, and he would eventually become the pope. And he would actually come under fire by Martin Luther for granting indulgences to the people that donated to the reconstruction of St. Peter's Basilica. And we'll be talking about St. Peter's Square here in just a second. And so, you know, uh, you can hear my papers going. Um, but, anyways, after death, the Italian Renaissance historians Francesco uh, Gucci, we'll call him Gucci, Um, Cradini and Paolo Giovio would accuse him of being a homosexual. So um, yeah, very interesting stuff. Once again, who knows whether or not we can believe it. But he would um, receive some of his education under who else but Marsilio Ficino, Roiklin would. And Reuchlin had more than just Medici backing, but you know, he had, you know, connections to the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian, to bishops and princes, and he, uh, one of his most valuable assets would actually be the German Catholic, uh, Jacob Questenberg, the papal secretary who kind of, like, happened with, uh, Pico would, you know, kind of help him stay out of trouble's way and getting in trouble with the ecclesiastical authorities, but anyways, uh, A lot, lot more, as with all these guys, could be said about Roikland, but let's go ahead and move on. I don't know if this will end up being one or two episodes, we will see, but let's just go ahead and get into the fascinating subject of Renaissance art and kind of some hermetic and pagan and Kabbalistic ideas being incorporated into Renaissance art. And we are going to be mostly, if not just about solely, talking about Michelangelo, who all of you guys know, the guy who would paint the Sistine Chapel. And for two years of his life, he would actually live in the palace of Lorenzo de' Medici. And, uh, you know, the palace of Lorenzo de' Medici would have all sorts of people coming through there, like Marsilio Ficino and Pico de' Mirandola. And um, it would actually be, um, you know, the Vatican would commission Michelangelo, as we said, to be the main artist of the Vatican, and as we all know, to paint the Sistine Chapel. And Biagio de Cessna, who served as the papal master of ceremonies in the 16th century, he would be deeply offended Horrified, shocked to his core upon seeing all the nude figures in Michelangelo's frescoes of The Last Judgment. Um, which I believe if I'm not incorrect, I'm kind of talking out my rear end just a little bit here, but I believe that it was the last judgment that he kind of started with painting. Maybe he worked his way backwards. I don't know. That could be totally wrong. But anyways, this guy would be horrified when he saw all the nude figures and he would actually say that the artwork was more suitable. And this is quote, for the public baths and taverns than for the most, um, for the public baths and taverns and, uh, You know, this was going into the time, the most important chapel in all the Western world. And it wouldn't be just this guy who would end up being offended by all the nudity in the Sistine Chapel. But eventually, I can't remember who was under, but they would end up, you know, painting figs over a lot of the genitalia in the Sistine Chapel, you know, just because people were so offended. And it kind of went against, you know, I don't know catholic sensibilities at the time and you know this was not something that was you know done in iconography um you know i can't speak too much on catholic iconography and obviously there was lots of changes during the renaissance and you know there was all these more realistic depictions of people that were being depicted with a much greater emphasis on the human body but you know in orthodox iconography you know you, you aren't supposed to do the most realistic depictions, and you were always supposed to, you know, portray saints as very chaste and, you know, not naked um, and, you know, not with all these pagan influences that we'll kind of see um, went into the Sistine Chapel here in just a second. But, you know, Michelangelo is, like, what end up doing to this guy that he... So, you know, he offended this guy. This guy is like, your stuff belongs in the bathhouses and taverns. So Michelangelo would do what was like the Renaissance artist equivalent of a dish track. And he would paint his face, um, this guy's face, Cessna's face, on Minos, who is the judge of the dead in the Greek underworld. And, you know, so in The Last Judgment, Minos is in... Hell, he is in the underworld, and he has donkey ears and a serpent's mouth latched onto his penis. And <laughs> he'd paint this guy's face onto the figure of it after um, he was talking smack. And uh, the legend is that when Biagio complained of this to Pope Paul III, you know, because who wouldn't be offended by um, this depiction of themselves— Uh, Pope Paul III supposedly joked that his jurisdiction did not extend to hell. And, you know, so while nudity hadn't before been essential or even permitted in iconography, I mean, even, you know, depictions of Adam and Eve prior to this were more chaste than, uh, you know, other you know, Old Testament prophets and stuff that would be depicted by Michelangelo and Christ himself. But nudity was essential to Greco-Roman pagan art, which had a very heavy emphasis on the body as opposed to the Christian emphasis on chastity, humility, and the struggle against the passions. And, um, so never before was, you know, nudity regarded as desirable in iconography it was actually anything but and you know many people must have only been able to construe all of this as pornographic and among the artwork of the Sistine Chapel you see that there are five sibyls and seven prophets who are you know foretelling the coming of Christ which it makes sense with the Old Testament prophets foretelling the uh the coming of Christ, but it is not really so with the five sibyls. And for those of you who are not familiar, a sibyl in Greek mythology is an oracle or a prophetess. And the reason for um, this is to kind of, for me bringing all this up, is to illustrate, you know, this hermetic ideal of the sibyls in Penguin Antiquity, who are just like the Old Testament prophets and are foretelling the coming of Christ. Now kind of like the mainstream Catholic idea is that you know Christ didn't just come for the Jews alone, but that he came for the whole world. And that's why these sibyls are depicted in the Sistine Chapel. And you know, there is room for debate about, you know, whether the sibyls could have, I guess, prophesized of Christ because I mean, for instance, in the Old Testament in numbers, Balaam, Um, he was a non-Israelite who the Bible says, you know, prophesies, and he would at one point refuse to curse Israel, um, at the behest of the king of Moab, but eventually Balaam would, you know, help entice the Israelites to sexual immorality and munching on food, sacrifice to idols. But, you know, he did prophesy and he had, you know, legitimate prophecies at, at one point, um you know, and there's a whole, whole, whole lot to be said about that, and I believe, if I remember correctly, um, because it's been a long time since I've read numbers in the Bible, but I think I remember um, in the study notes it talking about, you know, debate amongst the church fathers about this subject. Um, But, you know, anyways, I guess there's room for debate, but... What I think is interesting when we're taking it into account how Michelangelo depicted everything is that these symbols are painted larger than any of the other figures um, in the Sistine Chapel. So there's kind of like a primary focus when one is looking at it on the symbols, and not only are the symbols there along with, you know, the old some Old Testament prophets, but... These symbols in Old Testament prophets, you know, aside from Christ um, and the father, which is depicted in the iconography in the Sistine Chapel's art, which we will get into in a moment, there are no other New Testament saints, to my knowledge. So it's very, very interesting that, you know, he's commissioned by the Pope who, he the Pope just kind of wanted... You know Christ and and Mary there, and Michelangelo was like, "Let me do things my way." And eventually, the Pope caved into his ideas, and so probably the Pope himself was a little bit shocked when you know there's all this emphasis on the Old Testament figures, and there's these sibyls up there, and um, you know, I mean, there's no other New Testament saints um, there, um, so you know. Michelangelo's depiction of the sibyls in the Sistine Chapel, at least in my mind, is clearly done in the context of the Medici, Ficino, Pico, or Hermetic and Neoplatonic circle that he ran with. And this, I believe, is exhibited by the you know the fact that the pagan sibyls are larger than any of the figures to be found, as you know are already mentioned. And there was actually a book called *Sistine Secrets*: Michelangelo's Forbidden Messages in the Heart of the Vatican. Which is um, written by Roy Doliner, who is a religious Jew and a former Vatican guide, along with the rabbi Benjamin Black. And they discuss how Michelangelo's education at the court of Lorenzo de' Medici would have included Kabbalistic texts and how Jewish, Kabbalistic, and pagan symbols can be found throughout the Sistine Chapel. And Doliner, in his investigation, which began in 1999 when he was. Looking through a pair of binoculars, and instead of seeing the Greek alpha and omega being used as a symbol for Christ, he saw that it was the Hebrew letters Aleph and Ayin. And, you know, if I didn't already butcher enough Hebrew during the pentagrammaton discussion that we had, I figured that I ought to butcher some more. Um, But, you know, and then he saw that um, there was other Jewish figures depicted in the Last Judgment painting, and this sparked his interest to do more investigation into the artwork of the Sistine Chapel. And the Sistine Chapel was modeled after Solomon's temple by the Florentine architect Bacchio Pantalelli. And on the floor can be the on the floor's path that you know they take during the procession, during the Mass, um, you can see all these seals of Solomon's throughout, or more commonly today known as the Star of David. And this is um, what Doliner calls a Kabbalistic meditational device. And he says that the flooring corresponds with the Kabbalistic tree of life. And uh, many of you guys, even if you don't know what I'm talking about, if you were to do a brief Google of the Kabbalistic tree of life, you probably have seen a picture of it before. But perhaps the most infamous scene in the Sistine Chapel is the creation of Adam, where you can see God the Father and Adam, both with their arms outstretched, and their index fingers about to touch one another. And something interesting to say about iconography is that typically in iconography, and I know in Orthodox iconography, you never depict the father, because the father did not become incarnate. And, you know, he never took that kind of form, so you would never depict the father. And, uh, and especially like that. But um, the father can be seen in Michelangelo's, um, you know, the creation of Adam and what appears to be the cross-section of the right side of the brain. And what's interesting about this is in Kabbalah, the right side of the human brain um, means chakma or wisdom. And, of course, this could be a some sort of reference on michelangelo's part to the conception of god being a divine mind which exists in many different kinds of belief systems not just you know catholic christianity but um you know in a lot of uh you know different religious belief and philosophical belief systems the idea of the divine mind and that God is a divine mind and this takes on all different kinds of manifestations and we don't have time to get into the minutiae Of that and uh, you know kind of my conception of God versus other people plus that's not what I'm here to do I'm here to talk about the, the history of things, you know, I I'm interested in theology But I'm by no means an expert on any of that stuff So you guys shouldn't want to listen to me talk about that anyways but um, it isn't just Dolaner and Rabbi Black who um, are, you know, seeing all this Kabbalistic imagery and along with the pagan sibyls and all this inside the Sistine Chapel. But another person who, you know, kind of saw some of this type of imagery and talks about it is the art historian Jane Scholier. And she believed that the beautiful women beneath the, not the beautiful women, the beautiful woman beneath the arm of God in the creation of Adam, Um, she didn't think that this was Eve, which is kind of most people's interpretation of it, but she actually believed this to be the Kabbalistic Shekinah, or God's female beloved, according to, you know, Kabbalistic mythology, and that this is the Shekinah is, you know, identified with the 10th emanation in the Kabbalah, which goes back to the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. And as interesting as all that is, it's very complicated. I don't have time to expand on that here. And I would also have have to have done a lot more research to properly speak on it. Um, but this in you know, the Kabbalah, Kabbalah Is the source of human life. And Shulier also found in the temptation panel what she believes to be Lilith. And she points this out because Adam and the servant look like twins, which corresponds with the teachings of Kabbalah um, about how, you know, Lilith and Adam are, you know, kind of like twins. And Lilith was actually supposed to be in, you know, kind of like Kabbalistic mythology the first wife of adam before eve and it gets real real complicated but um you know lilith is kind of like a um, uh, for lack of a better word like a, a whore type figure and uh that anyways if you're interested in that you can do research into to lilith and she would obviously play a big role in down the line in All different, not just Kabbalistic and Jewish esoteric thought, but also in occult thought. But anyways, um, you know, we could go on and on and on about all this. Um, Rabbi Benjamin Black, I can't find the quote right now, but he, you know, he comments himself on how there is nothing really distinctly Christian in the Sistine Chapel, aside from, you know, Christ. But most all of it, um, you know, is, you know, Jewish and Kabbalistic, and you have the pagan symbols, and you also have all these nude boys depicted in the Sistine Chapel, and how it's, you know, very interesting uh, what Michelangelo decided to do with the Sistine Chapel,
2: Oh dear Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand, I am tired, I am weak. my feet, hold my hand, take my hand, precious Lord, lead me home. Oh, dear Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand, I am tired, I am weak. Take my hand, Precious Lord, lead me home.
1: Anyways, forward we go, and now we are going to talk about St. Peter's uh, Square. And, you know, obviously St. Peter's Square is outside St. Peter's Basilica Cathedral, which was the initial one, was built by Constantine the Great, and it was built in the 4th si- century. But as the structures, as structures tend to do, began to age, Pope Nicholas V began to plan to re- replace the old St. Peter's, and these plans would eventually begin on April 18, 1506, under Pope Julius II, and, com- cl- and conclude on November of 18. 18- 26 so it underwent a a long time period of you know renovating saint peter's basilica and catholic tradition holds that the relics of saint peter are at the basilica and yes i am talking about the apostle peter the first bishop of rome and um one of the principal designers just so happens to be the aforementioned michelangelo and in the middle of St. Peter's Square, in the open space, which lies before the basilica, is what is known as the Vatican obelisk. But it was initially re- erected in Heliopolis. And, and Heliopolis is in Egypt, and the pharaoh who decided to erect this is unknown. But if memory serves me correct, this obelisk is like supposed to be 4,500 years old. Um, dating back to the 13th century and it is constructed from a single piece of red granite and it initially belonged to the temple of the sun god Ra who in Egyptian mythology created all life Um, and it's interesting to note that the Menevis Bull um, cult had its center in Heliopolis where there was a formal burial ground for the sacrificed bulls. And this all kind of corresponds with Ra and the sun god. And I'm gonna pause it real quick because I want to read you guys an entry in the McClintock and Strong biblical cyclopedia that talks a little bit about calf worship. So that way we can get back to talking about the obelisk. So here we are, we're gonna be reading from the McClintock and Strong biblical cyclopedia. And this might take just a little bit of time. But I do think that it is very interesting, and whether or not it will ultimately bear any um, relevance to what we're talking about will be for you to decide or maybe to do further research on. But I did think that this was interesting, and I haven't seen anybody else make this connection, although I'm sure somebody has. So it says about calf worship, This appears to have originated in Egypt, where we know that the brutes of nearly all sorts were held in reverence by some, one, or another of the various gnomes into which that country was divided. Of all these creatures, however, the calf, or rather, bullock, seems to have been most generally adored, especially a peculiar description, a rather peculiarly colored bull, to which under the name of Apis or Minevis, divine honors of the most extraordinary kind were paid throughout Egypt. It is from this form of idolatry that the scriptural examples of calf worship are clearly derived. Yet it is possible that the commentators are not quite correct in supposing Apis to be the deity whose worship was imitated by the Jews, at least in the first instance. The Egyptians gave that name to a living bull, which they worshipped at Memphis. But they also worshipped another, another living bull in the city of On, or Heliopolis, which they called Ne or, according to the Greek form, Menevis, in which they adored as the living emblem of the sun. Now the Israelites, from the circumstance of their living in the land of Goshen, in or near which Heliopolis was situated, and also from the connection of Joseph, the head of their nation, with one of the priestly families of that city, must have all been well acquainted with its peculiar forms of idolatry. It is also very probable that many of them had joined in those rites during their sojourn we might therefore naturally suppose that they would adopt them on this occasion and the supposition that they did so is confirmed by a very curious fact very curious fact which has not yet been noticed as barring, barring upon this question champollion has observed in his pantheon egyptian that menevis is said by porphyry and plutarch to have been a black bull as apis unquestionably was But he assures us that this is not the case with regard to the existing remains of ancient Egypt. For although in the Egyptian paintings Apis is either colored black or black and white, Menevis, on the contrary, in the only figure of him hitherto discovered, is colored bright yellow, evidently with the intention of representing a golden image. This fact, though not a conclusive proof, affords a strong presumption that the golden calf was made according to the usual form and color of the images of Menevis. And as you guys can probably realize where I'm going with this, is the, you know, story of the golden calf. And I will just go ahead and real briefly read um, a real quick passage from the Bible for those of you who are not aware of the story of the golden calf, um, just so that way you guys can get um, a good idea. But most of you probably are, but it's always um, good for reference. But anyways, and Moses turned and went down from the mount, that is Mount Sinai, and the two tables of the testimony were in his hand. The tables were written on both their sides, on the one side and on the other were they written. And the tables were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, graven upon the stones. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. And he said, It is not the voice of them that shout for mastery, neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome, but the noise of them that sing do I hear. And it came to pass, as soon as he came nigh unto the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands, and brake them beneath the mount. And he took the calf which they had made, and burnt it in the fire, and ground it to power, powder, and strawed it upon the water, and made the children of Israel drink it. And Moses said unto Aaron, What did this people unto thee, that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them? So as you guys can see, that is the story of the golden calf. And possibly um, Heliopolis, where this obelisk was located, could have been, you know, kind of the source of this bull Bullcoat and their cult. And, you know, there's kind of possibly a tangential relation to the Vatican, the Menevis cult, the Golden Calf, and the obelisk that was eventually brought to the Vatican. But anyways, that was a little bit of a detour, so let's get back to the subject at hand. Ham, what the heck? I'm not I'm not even a huge ham fan. Why do I have ham on my mind? Anyhow, the obelisk was brought from Egypt to Alexandria under Augustus and then it was brought to Rome under Caligula in 37 AD and it would initially be erected in his gardens before being placed in the center of a circus that would be started by Caligula and finished by Nero So uh, there's a couple colorful characters, if you will. Caligula and Nero, you know, Caligula, the demented Roman emperor who was into all kinds of weird debauchery and weird sex stuff, was rumored to be incestuous, you know, there's the story of him um, where he was going to appoint the horse whom he loved so much to the Senate and... All that crazy stuff. I'm sure that you guys are somewhat familiar with Caligula. And Nero, the great persecutor of Christians, and just another absolute lunatic. So, anyways, it has been said that Peter and Paul were both killed at the orders of Nero, and Catholic legend has it that Peter was killed in the shadow of the obelisk obelisk, that would eventually be brought to St. Peter's Square. And this is supposedly the reason for the obelisk being brought to St. Peter's Square, which I'm not really sure if that's a good reason to bring it to St. Peter's Square, but I don't know, maybe I can see it. And a cross was placed at the top of the obelisk, and this is, you know, supposed to represent the triumph of Christ and the triumph of, you know, the Church of Christ, which Peter helped to establish, you know. Um, in Rome, you know, uh, over paganism, but kind of like how Michelangelo's, you know, biblical prophets and depictions of Jesus, you know, are kind of, you know, not brought to the forefront of the attention and, you know, the pagan symbols rather are, um, the obelisk stands at the center of, you know, St. Peter's Square And it looms large over all the, you know, Christian iconography and buildings and stuff that are there present. So it's kind of another one of these things where your attention is kind of drawn to this great obelisk. And so, I don't know, maybe this is all a little bit tenuous, you know, ever since I started talking about the obelisk and somehow got into the Golden Calf. But I thought it was interesting. Hopefully I haven't lost your guys' attention but well, let's just talk a little bit about what obelisks are, especially as it relates to Egyptian mythology. Well, obelisk is a Greek word for spit, like the spit that you would put through an animal before roasting it over the hearth, but um, the Egyptians called um, them tekanu, meaning to pierce, as in, you know, these giant obelisks pierce the sky, they reach up into the heavens, and you know... As you guys know you guys have seen obelisks before they are rectangular pillars with tops that taper into a pyramid type structure and it is interesting to note that many ancient cultures constructed obelisks other than egypt but really only in egypt were they monolithic stone structures and usually as with the obelisk we are talking about now in vatican city they were made out of red granite. So these monolithic red granite monoli- um, obelisk is, you know, what Egypt is known for. And there have been current days at raising obelisks with ancient Egyptian tech, and those have failed. So obviously it's the aliens. Just kidding. But anyways, that is kind of an interesting aside. But as probably some of you have heard... Some believe that, you know, and uh, that the myth of kind of what ended up becoming the Egyptian idea behind the obelisk started with Nimrod in Babylon. So perhaps that's true, perhaps it's not. But we are talking about the mythology surrounding the death of Osiris. And so in Egyptian mythology, Osiris was murdered by Set and His body scattered into what I believe was 15 different pieces across all the land. But only 14 of these pieces could be retrieved by Isis, who was working on piecing back together her lover, Osiris. And what part of Osiris could she not find? Of course, the penis, because the penis can be hard to find. I don't know, maybe this is wrong, but I feel like if I remember correctly. Correctly. It's been a while since I've looked into it, but I want to say that like it's because like a fish swallowed Osiris's penis or something like that. I don't know, but anyways, Isis is looking all over the place for her man's penis and she cannot find it. So she does the next best the next best thing and constructs a gold penis and she substitutes this golden phallus in, on in place of the slain Osiris on his throne and what is the phallic symbol what is the penis well obviously it's representative of the regenerative forces of you know you know strength and of the creative powers and you know so i mean i guess that's kind of where things come from and that is you know part of what that mythology in egypt is around So, you know, in Vatican City, you have this big, you know, according to Egyptian lore, phallic symbol. But there's also other things that people have said that the obelisk is meant to represent. And I'll read you something here real quick. This comes from worldhistory.org on their article entitled Egyptian Obelisk, where it talks about what else but Egyptian obelisk, and they have a part on the symbolism of the obelisk that kind of gives us another perspective on what the Egyptian obelisk possibly means. The obelisk of ancient Egypt represented the Benben, the primordial mound upon which the god Adam stood at the creation of the world. As such, they were associated with the Benu bird, the Egyptian precursor to the Greek phoenix. According to some Egyptian myths, the Bennu bird was the first living creature whose cry awoke creation and set life in motion. The bird was linked to the morning star and the renewal of each day, but was also the sign of the end of the world. In the same way the bird had cried to begin the creative cycle, she would sound again to signal its completion. And so it's, you know, kind of related to the morning star, which is important in astrology. And you even see in the Bible mention of the morning star. And it's actually, interestingly enough, both used to refer to Christ in parts of the Bible, but it is also used to refer to Lucifer. Now, whether that means anything to the conversation we're having at hand, who's to say? But maybe it's worth mentioning, maybe not. Um... The Egyptians believed a day would come when the gods would die and all would return to the uniformity of primordial chaos. The Bennu bird would not choose the end of its own, but would be given its cue by the sun god Ra, who in turn would have been informed by the god Thoth, keeper of the records of humans and gods. The Bennu bird was primarily linked, however, with Ra and with light and life. You know, so as we said earlier, you know, Ra set creation in motion. But anyways, so this gives us a little bit of idea of what the obelisk meant to the Egyptians, but it's also very interesting just to note that, you know, we have the obelisk in Vatican City. Um, And so, yes, just all very interesting. So we covered a lot today. I don't know if this will end up being one episode or two episodes. We will see... But I have really enjoyed talking about all of this, and I have enjoyed this series on the occult infiltration of the Vatican. Now, some of this, I think, is, you know, uh, very important because we can see how all of this relates to later ecumenism and kind of some of the interfaith stuff that we see going in the Vatican. We can see how it changed... um, the theology of many catholic thinkers and it also had a huge bearing on the renaissance and it gave birth to renaissance humanism and you know a lot of people just kind of think of the renaissance as this time period where people started to shift away from uh you know religious ways of thinking and started to think in a more secular way and how you know all philosophy became more secularized during the renaissance but what most people fail to take into account is the incult the occult influence on the renaissance and uh you know we also just talked about the possible black magic necromancer monk we talked about you know Ficino Pico all of those guys Royklin And we talked a lot about, you know, the Vatican artwork and how we see these weird things where, you know, we see Hermes Trismegistus and, you know, figures like Isis and, you know, the Vatican apartments. And so we have really seen a whole lot of very interesting stuff in our little bit of research into all of this. And it is just, you know very interesting to take note of all this. And most often when people think of the Catholic Church and the occult, we think of witches being burned at the stake. We think of people being persecuted for their beliefs in occult things among, you know, the Catholic Church. But while there is some grain of truth for that, there's also a grain of truth to be found in the opposite, where you have all these different pagan and neoplatonic and straight-up occult ideas being absorbed into the Catholic ecclesiastical structure, and that you have some very, very interesting figures who get into all of this. And perhaps the last thing that we can just touch on real, real tangentially is the fact that not only were, you know, certain people who were interested in occult and just, in general, challenging, you know, the Catholic beliefs of the time on, you know, I don't know, uh, geocentric versus heliocentric thought or, or what have you. You also have people like Gerolimo and um, he, he was born into a well-to-do family. He had a grandfather who was a professor of of medicine at the University of Padua and who was a doctor to the court of Ferrara. and his brother was a canon lawyer and he was born in 1452 and he would be tutored by his grandfather and he would eventually be sent to San Marco Monastery in the city of Medici, Florence, where he taught the sacred scriptures and theology and he would preach against the corruption that was happening in the church at the time and he would advise the church's clergy saying to refrain from great lords you know like the medicis because they can easily sway you and compromise you and put you in a position to where you know you can't really talk out against them because you're being bankrolled against them and he really saw all this bankrolling by the medicis and other powerful families leading to the degradation of the church that he cared for so much. And he would actually be threatened with agents of Pope Alexander VI, who we've mentioned before, with excommunication. And this only caused him to ramp up his rhetoric against what he viewed to be the blasphemers of the faith, the wealthy, and um, their negative impact on the church. And many people have actually theorized that Pope Alexander had offered Savonarola a position as a cardinal, you know, give him the red hat, but he would be sorely mistaken because Savonarola had more important things than power that he was after. He wanted to correct what he viewed to be the blasphemy and the degradation of the church's teachings that was happening inside the church. And Pope Alexander VI would actually issue Savonarola's excommunication, and initially the people around Savonarola refused to have him arrested, fearing that the public outcry um, would to arrest him would just you know be too much, um, and that it would cause like almost like a small revolt on their hands, you know, because he was a a preacher of the people, you know, like the type of guy who would go out into the public square and he would just decry these, you know, wealthy elites that he viewed to be making a mockery of the Catholic Church. And so... um Eventually, he would have gangs that would try to capture him, and one of these gangs was actually backed by the Medici, and after they failed to capture him, they would smear excrement on the altar in the pulpit of the Cathedral of Florence, where he would, you know, do a lot of his preaching. And on April 8th, 1498, he would finally be arrested. He would be placed on trial, and you know, some people kind of view this trial to have been a great farce, and he would eventually be tortured and hung, and his body burned, so that way nobody could gather his relics and venerate him, and there could be, you know, no further cult that would exist around Savonarola, but, you know, we talked a lot about people in the Catholic Church who were kind of in the thralls of the medici who were very interested in all of this occult stuff but as always there are people who have who were against it and who were very upset about it and who did everything in their power to stop it and often those people got caught up in the clutches of the powerful vatican and so it wasn't just occultists who were you know burned at the stake or who were tortured or something like that. You also had people who, you know, you had some occultists who got absorbed into the Vatican power structure. You had a couple like Bruno, who we mentioned real briefly, who, uh, you know, he went against the Catholic structure. And so he got uh, punished for it to say the least. He was killed. But you also have people who went against the Catholic power structure from the other way. And who were, you know, professing Catholics, who believed in the traditions and the teachings of the church, and who thought that those were being, you know, blasphemed by these Renaissance occultists who got all into all of this, you know, hermetic stuff and who were in the throes of the people like the the Medicis and whatnot. And those people would also face persecution as well. So I thought that before we conclude this series, that that would be worth a brief mention. And as always, there's a lot more that could be said. We could talk about later people who were involved with the Catholic Church and who got into occultism. I mean, we real briefly mentioned Eliphas Levy and how he would, you know, start off as uh, wanting to become a Catholic priest and he would eventually become the most one of the most famous Western occultists of not recent, but more recent times. And so, there's there's all sorts of stuff that could be said, but I do think that we are coming to a good place to end this series, and there's always more that can be said. Now, I'm not sure what the next episodes are going to be about, but I might talk about some other stuff in relation to the Catholic Church, perhaps... Catholic connections to intelligence agencies, to the Nazis, to the mob. I think that that could be a very, very fun series that uh, we could do here on things observed and that perhaps that you guys would like. But anyways, I hope that you guys had fun with all of this. I had fun with all of this. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast or any of my other podcasts, I would really appreciate you giving me a good rating on Spotify, if that's where you are listening, or on Apple Podcasts, if that's where you are listening, or sharing it with your friends, so that way this can get out there in front of more people, and I will continue to do episodes, so make sure to follow me or subscribe to me or whatever it's called on whatever platform you're on, because this podcast is on a number of different platforms, but now it is far past breakfast time. But we are well into lunch hours. I'm actually kind of between lunch and dinner hours. So I think it's time that I get something to eat. I would have Josie give a goodbye to you guys. But she is currently asleep on my bed. So I guess that she'll have to introduce herself to the podcast at some other point. But anyhow, I'm Luke Marshall. This was Things Observed. Thanks for listening. And I hope you guys have a great day or night. Yeah.